Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce drawer of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus, Jesus' feet, with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance, but, but Judas Iscariot, Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief, and since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, Praise God! Blessings on the one who, come, who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His, dis his disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of, of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, There's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Um, we'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. Thank you guys for waiting so patiently. I'm sure they're excited following the two Jasons and Miss Taylor back there. Let me invite the rest of you, if you brought a Bible, to open it to, um, to John chapter 12. And as they're doing that, uh, we just got back from staff retreat. Um, thank you for praying for us. Um, and I just want to say I could not be more hopeful and encouraged by the staff at Covenant Church. Um, God is doing some incredible things, and I think the, um, the future is just really exciting. Um, also, thanks for praying for me. I, uh, I fought old COVID for a couple weeks and um, am back and healthy and feeling, feeling great and should be the safest person in the room at this point. I've been tested so many times. Um, so um, uh, also I uh, want to say uh, happy birthday to uh, Jeff Grubbs, one of our elders, Jeff Grubbs back there, uh, the wise sage in the room. It's his birthday. Um, uh, give him a hug, but don't pass on any disease. Um, this is an incredible passage, and uh, I have read and read and read this passage. It has ministered to my heart so much, and um, Phil, uh, I don't, you know, feels great at what he does. Just the songs that we're, we've sung today fit so well with this passage. Um, let me start with this question. What happens when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? You know, the gap between expectation and reality leads to frustration. I remember when we first got married, um, my mom had always uh, fixed breakfast for me every morning. 
We went on a little cruise. We came back. I've told you this story before. We get to the house. I lean over to Ashley in bed and I was like, hey, babe, what's for breakfast? And she looked at me like really weird. And I was like, you know, like, like what's for breakfast? And she was like, well, do you want me to show you where the cereal is? I think you're a big boy. You can fix your own, right? There's a a gap between expectation and reality. And so we lived in a little house next to my mom. So I just went next door and ate oatmeal again. Um, What happens though when Jesus doesn't meet your expectation? This is a little character study we see in, uh, in the passage today. We get two scenes sandwiched together the week before Passover. And John, the author here, gives more than half of his gospel um, to this last week in Jesus' life. And uh, th- if you've ever read through the gospel, John, these are the great passages we're fixing to get to. I mean, all of it has been just incredible. As a matter of fact, we're going to find the events that he's talking about um, that kind of start this last week of, of his life. We'll be talking about those for the next few months. And in these two scenes, we meet a few people. And this really this character study when we find out how we react when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. What happens when Jesus doesn't come through the way that you thought he would? You know, we've all got expectations for Jesus. We've all got things that we want him to do. We've all got dreams. These are fine. But what happens when he doesn't come through the way we think he should come through? First, we see Mary of Bethany. We're introduced to Mary. We see Martha there. Lazarus is there. Judas is there. And we see that they're throwing this house party um, in honor of Jesus, really, and of Lazarus. And, you know, we all got that go-to story that we tell at uh, social events, some cool thing, some cool person we met. How cool is Lazarus' story? Like, he's going to top every other story. Like, there was this one time I was dead, and now I'm not anymore. And so he's there. He's reclining at the table. They're in Simon's house. Another gospel tells us, not, not Simon the Pharisee, but Simon the leper, one that was likely healed by Jesus. They would have been outside of the city of Jerusalem in Bethany. And uh, we walk in and see this dinner scene kind of happening and this incredible thing that Mary does. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 26, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This incredible statement by Jesus that when the gospel is proclaimed... They're going to tell this story of Mary, and this is exactly what we're doing 2,000 years later. We're proclaiming the gospel and reminding everyone else of this very thing. So let's talk about Mary. Mary of Bethany. She had a crisis of faith in the previous chapter when Jesus didn't do what she wanted him to do. If you remember, now we skipped over this, but we talked about it um, when we were doing the I Am statements of Jesus last Easter When Jesus didn't do what she wanted him to do, remember her brother Lazarus was sick and they sent word to Jesus. The one great thing about having Jesus, you know, on speed dial is that he can do anything. And they sent word to Jesus. The passage says that he tarried several more days. Lazarus dies. Jesus finally makes the journey out to talk to Lazarus uh, and, and the family. Of course, he knows that he's dead. Um, and Martha encounters him quickly, and it said that Mary didn't even want to come to see Jesus. 
She stayed in the house. Martha comes. Jesus, why are you so late? Why didn't you show up on time? Finally, he comes a little further. Martha goes to get married. Jesus wants to see you. He comes. She comes, falls at his feet and said, Jesus, if you would have only been here, my brother would not have died. The text says that she, here at the, we see kind of their love languages too when we kind of enter into this scene, if you can see it. Jesus is there, they're throwing the party. Martha serving this acts of service. Lazarus reclining at the table. Maybe they're asking him questions about what it was like to be dead. Now alive. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Pure nard, 16 ounces of it at least, worth a year's wages, the gospel tells us, or 300 denarii. Say in today's terms, a year's wage, maybe $50,000, I don't know what you make, but an incredible amount of money. Think about a year's wage. There's probably not one item that you own that is worth a year's wages. And the fact that you would have such a thing was probably handed down in your family. Maybe it was part of her dowry that she would use when she got married. I mean, it was this crazy, her most prized possession, everything that she had. And we see her gladly emptying it on Jesus. Just the scandalous generosity Not everybody was happy about it. In verse 4, Judas speaks up. But Judas Iscariot, he's the second character in in this first scene. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him in verse 4, it says, he said, why was this ointment not sold for the 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, John gives us some insight, not because he really cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he would help himself to it. What was put into it? And Jesus rebuked him. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. It's really not a terrible question that he asks. Jesus, why would, why would you let her take this $50,000 worth of a gift and pour the whole thing on you? But Jesus knows his heart. Friends, can I remind you that Jesus knows your heart? You know, it's easy to come into an environment like this, especially the religious South. And, you know, we know what to do. We know how to pose. We know how to play the game. We know how to smile and say brother and sister and raise the hands at the right time and sing the right words. But you know, God looks through all of that to your heart. God sees your heart. He knows your heart, your motives, what you really mean. Jesus rejects Judas here, defends and praises Mary. She had kept this from the day, for the day of his burial. She knew somehow, probably more in her heart than in her head, that his death was close. It's this beautiful picture again of radical generosity, of surrendered worship of Mary. And in the same scene, We see in Judas of deceit 
and self-righteous arrogance. So that's scene one. Now let's move to scene two. This is the triumphal entry in verse 12. We'll skip. We'll come back to that uh, verse 9 through 11 here in a second. The next day, Jesus' feet still smelling of the beautiful ointment. A large crowd had gathered, had come to the feast, had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And crying out, they sang or screamed, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand the things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So you've got the crowd, this group, and then the Pharisees in verse 19. So then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The triumphal entry, we meet the fans of Jesus. And once again, we see the Pharisees. People often think about Palm Sunday, this Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, as this innocent children's parade. Years before Jesus' birth, though, it was so much more than that. Years before Jesus' birth, Israel's great temple had been destroyed by foreign powers. And under the Maccabees rose some leadership and Israel won back a measure of their freedom, which included, once again, the control of the temple. And palm branches were used at its rededication and it became their national symbol, the Jewish national symbol, maybe similar to our eagle. During two major wars against Rome, Israel... Israelite rebels illegally minted coins with palms on them. The palm branch was this, again, this political symbol that would stoke this national pride in their country, like maybe Uncle Sam for us, something like that. And waving a palm branch in front of Rome was like waving a red flag in front of a bull. It was a declaration of war. Our Messiah's come and he's going to overthrow our oppressors in Rome. For the crowds, this was a military statement. And John points us to this in the passage because they begin by quoting Psalms 118, Hosanna, which literally means, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Psalms 118, the next line is, from the house of the Lord we bless you, but that's not what the crowds say. What they say in response is blessed is the king of Israel. In other words, they're combining these two thoughts. Blessed is the one who's going to overthrow Pilate and Herod and Caesar. And those are fighting words. Maybe you've got some of those words, the fighting words. People can insult you a lot, but don't talk about my mama, right? There's something that if someone says to you, you're like, okay, it's time to throw fists. Like, this is enough. We're going we're gonna to do this. And this is in essence what they're saying. And then the text mentions that he's riding in on this colt of a donkey. Again, there had been this prophecy given hundreds of years before through the work of a man named Zechariah. 
And God had promised through him that you'll know when the Messiah's come, when the princes come, you'll know that your king-to-be is among you, that the Lord is at hand. When you see this symbol riding in, the Messiah riding in on the colt of a donkey. Here it is exactly as it's recorded in the Old Testament in Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? So the prophecy is given hundreds of years before. Everybody's talking about it. You can just think about the great-grandparents and the grandparents and the parents all passing this down. Hey, one day our Savior's coming. One day our Savior's coming, the Messiah's coming, the Prince is coming, and he's going to redeem us, and he's going to have salvation in his hand. And you'll know it when you see him coming in on the young donkey. And they had been eagerly anticipating and waiting and waiting. This great king is coming. Caesar's not the king and Herod's not the king, but Jesus is the greater king. Saul was a good king and David was a better king, but a greater king was coming who would bring lasting change. And these people wanted their king and they were right. Jesus was the greater king, the very king of kings, but he wasn't the king they wanted. He was the king they needed, but he wasn't the king they wanted. He wasn't a puppet king. They wanted a political revolution, but Jesus came to bring a spiritual revolution. They wanted freedom from Rome. Jesus came to offer freedom from sin. They wanted a warrior king, but Jesus wouldn't fight. The Hosannas would stop abruptly. He just disappointed people at a rate they couldn't stand. The title King of Israel would hang ominously over Jesus from his birth as it would over his death. The idea that he was a king would confuse everyone, especially the kings. And then finally we see the Pharisees. They're confused, they're angry. Jump back in verse 10, really verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but to see Lazarus who did raise from the dead. So the chief priests, these are the leaders of this group of religious Pharisees, made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. They wanted to kill Lazarus. They wanted to kill Jesus. In the previous chapter, after he had brought Lazarus back from the dead and all the fanfare, it says in 11 verse 43, from that day they made plans to put Jesus to death. And you think about it, what what are the Pharisees really afraid of? Well, John tells us in verse 48, in their discussion, they say if, This is uh, chapter 11, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're afraid of losing control. They wanted control. Man, this just wrecked my heart this week because one of the idols that I have is control. And I don't want to lose control either. 
And sometimes the Holy Spirit orchestrates events in such a way or even speaks to me to remind me that I, I don't have the control that I think I even have. Remember, Jesus accused them in chapter 10 of being the, the blind guides, the evil shepherds who didn't care for the sheep and contrasted with him, the good shepherd, the great shepherd who loved the sheep and gave his life for the sheep. Jesus just keeps getting in their way. And so they just said, let's kill him and let's kill Lazarus too, anyone who gets in our way. You remember the question we started with, what happens when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations? Think about your dreams. We all have dreams of relationships, of a perfect family, of making it in the NBA. Maybe that's just mine. Of having a cancer-free life. There's nothing wrong with having a dream. The problem comes in, and listen, this is so subtle, friends. The problem comes in when those dreams become our demands. And when those demands aren't met, when our enemies grow stronger and more vile, when we lose the job anyway, when the depression lingers, when the tension in marriage remains, when those demands aren't met, Jesus, if you love me, if you care for me, then this is what I'm, this is the fleece I'm putting out. Then if you do this for me, you're going to prove to me as if Jesus after the cross needs to prove anything about his love for us. But this is when our dreams become demands. And this is such a subtle thing. Friends, don't just dismiss this. This happens in our life. And this is, this is one of the schemes of the enemy to take our unfulfilled dreams, our expectations compared with reality. And there's this growing frustration in the middle. Jesus, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. And our expectations aren't met. And they quickly become frustration and doubt. Maybe you've seen this in your own life. If we can be real today, we doubt his goodness. We doubt his power. We doubt his love. We doubt his nearness. Does Jesus even care at all? And those necessarily aren't wrong questions. We see the psalmist. If you read through Psalms, I love Psalms. The book of Psalms should be a steady part of your diet of reading the Psalms because you see the Psalmist, David, like, God, where are you? I've been praying and praying. My enemies are just getting stronger. I've been sick and sick and you haven't showed up. I've cried myself to sleep every night for this past season. Where are you at? And yet over and over, the Psalmist sides with the character of God way above what he's feeling in the moment. And that is the key. So if we're not careful, our dreams, our unfulfilled dreams become demands and the demands, these expectations quickly turn to frustration and doubt. And then if our doubt, if not dealt with, with the truth of God's word, turn into bitterness or even anger. And for many, they just give up altogether. They drop, they drop the palm branch. They cut the song short. They put the nard away. They turn the TV on and pop open the top of some Ben and Jerry's and they just try to cope with it. Or momentarily forget that their broken dreams have now turned into seeds of bitterness to the only one who really loves them perfectly, their creator God. 
Now, if any of this is anywhere reminiscent of anything that you've ever felt or walked through, I want to remind you of three things. First, there is deliverance that we need that's greater than what we want. There is a deliverance that we need that is greater than the one that we want. There's a greater enemy than Rome. There's a greater enemy than cancer, disease. There's a greater enemy than betrayal. There are far worse things in us than outside of us. What does Isaiah 53 say? That's the punishment placed on Jesus that brought us peace. Sometimes the reason that God leaves us in difficulty is that through the difficulty, we discover the things in us that really need to be changed. We pray, God, please change my work situation. I work for such a mean guy, but God doesn't change it. And it's through you staying in the difficult situation that he's given you a greater gift than you even ask for. He's making you look more like Jesus. God says, Luke, I know you want to be out of that circumstance, but I'm going to use this circumstance to give you a greater gift to change you. There's a deliverance that we need that is greater than the one that we want. And the people with the palm branches couldn't see it. Secondly, don't expect the fullness of the kingdom today. Don't expect the fullness of the kingdom of God today. Mark Sayers uses this word, words, an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is the word that we use for the study of end times. But I like this word, an over-realized eschatology, as one where we think all the things that Jesus promised way back even in Isaiah 9, the government will be upon his shoulders and of his kingdom there will be no end. That we expect that here and now. That's an over-realized eschatology. Listen, a never-ending happy ending is what God has woven in our hearts. And we are headed towards that with a relationship with God forever. Sorry, I think the mic went out. Don't expect the happy ending in its fullness today. Every longing that we have for a resistant free life, for every, for a pain-free life, for a Rome-free life, those are really desires for heaven, for glory. You are wanting the kingdom of God to come in its fullness now, but friends, we're just not there yet. It's not time for that yet. We suffer pain and opposition and difficulty and rebellion in our sin-wrecked world. It's just everywhere because we live in that space between. This is why I love about the song we sang, Anna sang earlier, in the waiting. No one likes waiting, but that's where, that's where we are refined, in the waiting. This is what's happening in a lot of us, even in our lives right now. We live in this space between, between the promise and the ultimate fulfillment. I love this phrase here. So this is what that means. While we hurt, 
we hope. While we hurt. This is not saying that hurt's not happening. Hurt's very real. Things are difficult. People are losing loved ones. We've just gone through a season. A lot of us are still grieving from the effects of just the difficulty of what we've walked through as in the world the past 18 months. But while we hurt, we hope. Every time you suffer disappointment, don't think that God has abandoned you or let, 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 let down his end of the deal. This is why believing a true gospel is so important. God never promised that the end of pain and difficulty would be experienced by us on earth. As a matter of fact, you know what he promised his disciples is take heart, right? In this world, you're going to face many, many problems. But take heart that I've overcome the world. You see the space between the already but not yet, the beginning of the promise, and we're seeing the kingdom of God at work in parts but not in its fullness. There's also a warning here for us not to hold to an underrealized eschatology. An underrealized eschatology is one that denies that the kingdom of God is at work at all in our lives today. That all healing and all comfort and all peace will only happen in the future. That's an underrealized. We even sang about that today. That he's a miracle working God. I believe he's a miracle working God. As a matter of fact, scripture tells us to pray that God would heal, to pray that God would intervene, to pray that God would cease. Jesus says, listen, you need to pray and you need to keep praying. You need to knock and you need to keep knocking. And so we do that. But a lot of people think, well, you know what? They just have this Eeyore kind of mentality like, man, my life sucks. It's just always going to suck. And I'm just going to live in this until heaven. That's an underrealized eschatology to act like God is not at work and that his spirit is not. Listen, friends, Christ is risen. The spirit has been given. There is healing and provision and joy and peace and comfort in the work and at work in the lives of believers. You believe this? Jesus made sure we knew that. He said, listen, the kingdom has come and it's here. It's just not in its fullness yet. Rome is still a bully on the block. Life is still hard. We still get sick. We still grieve. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talking about that. The whole passage is great. We don't have time to go through the whole thing. Verse 16, he just talked about how he had had the craziest, just a crazy life. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on Rome, not on disease, not on the boss or the crazy neighbor, not on, not on, the, not, not on the things. We fix our eyes not on those things, the things that are seen. No, you know what's going to conjure up hope in us? We fix our eyes on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Just that phrase. Maybe you need to underline that. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Don't expect the fullness of the kingdom today. It's, it's here, just not in its fullness And thirdly, the things that we need to remember to submit your agenda to Jesus' plan. 
submit your agenda to Jesus' plan. It's funny how many of the characters we look at in the biblical narrative had their own expectations for Jesus. Even the disciples, Peter did, and Jesus rebuked him for it. Judas did, and Jesus rebuked him for allowing the perfume to be wasted. He was rebuked. Martha did, and Thomas did, and James and John did. Just watch these guys. They all had their agenda, their expectations for Jesus. And friends, you probably do too. And maybe you wouldn't say it, but you've got an expectation. But it's almost laughable, isn't it, when you think about it? Because this is not the way of the kingdom. You don't give a king your agenda. No, you submit to his agenda. Look at the four characters we looked at today in this story. The religious leaders. They're opposed to Jesus as a Messiah. He wasn't prestigious enough. He was from Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, illegitimately born in their understanding. He didn't have enough clout. Jesus isn't doing what they hoped. And what's their solution when he doesn't meet their expectation? What is it? What, what, what is their solution when Jesus doesn't meet their expectation? Let's kill him. And let's kill anyone else who's testifying on his behalf. Let's kill Lazarus too. It's just right there in your face. Just see how hard, hard they are. You know what? Let's kill Jesus and let's kill Lazarus too. Man, the poor guy just died. Let's kill him again. When you say it like that, you see how arrogant that is. What a spirit of pride. I don't like what you have to say, Jesus. So, you know, let's kill you. Then look at G Judas. The treasurer, shady treasurer at that, lecturing Jesus on what he should do with the money. It's funny, too, how often people have legalistic advice when they themselves are living in sin. They're focused on the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. We see that in Judas. We see it in the Pharisees. We see it in church people all the time. We get so offended at the lesser things but ignoring the greater things. Judas had an agenda for Jesus. And when Jesus didn't meet his agenda, what did he want to do? He wanted to kill him. You know what he did? Betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus, you're not living up to my vision of who I hoped you were. You rebuked me in the presence of all of my friends. It would be better if you're just dead. And then you have the people with the palm branches, the fans of Jesus, this national symbol of patriotism for Israel. They wanted, <clears throat> again, to overthrow Rome and <clears throat> secure freedom for Israel. But Jesus had no such plans. So what do they do? They change their cries of Hosanna to Barabbas to crucify him. What was their solution when Jesus didn't meet their expectations? Let's kill him. Isn't that, isn't that crazy that all three of these characters, other than Mary of Bethany, we'll get to her in a second, 
When Jesus didn't meet their expectations, they were done with him. This is not lordship. This is not seeing him as Lord. This is seeing him as those did in John 6. Jesus, I just want you to come do all the fun stuff for me. I want fairy tale Jesus. I want, I want genie in the bottle Jesus. I want Jesus just to come and bring all the blessings and all the good stuff. But don't you dare tell me how to live. Don't you, don't you dare tell me what's best for me. I will decide that. Do you see the arrogance? And when our dreams and expectations become demands and Jesus doesn't meet them, we have bitterness that grows in our hearts. And then there's Mary. How does she respond? She responds in worship. Not just worship, but overwhelming generosity. The most expensive thing she had, worth a year's salary. No one could say that they couldn't even eat day to day. To have such a gift would have been just incredible. And she takes that gift and pours all of it on the feet of Jesus. And what's probably more scandalous about that moment is she let her hair down, which a, a good Jewish girl never did in public, and began to take this ointment and wipe the feet of Jesus. And I love this, it says in verse 4, that the fragrance filled the house. Mary of Bethany. In Luke 10, she sat at Jesus' feet and learned. Remember, that's Mary and Martha. She was sitting at his feet and learning. In John 11, she fell at his feet and surrendered. Jesus, if you had only been here, but resigning, Jesus, you know what's best. And then here in John 12, she anointed Jesus' feet in honor. I was just thinking about that even this morning. What if that was me? Jesus didn't come through how I wanted. I'm just not sure I would be that radically generous. Wouldn't just a little nard do? Couldn't just, I mean, just an ounce, 16 ounces, that's a lot. I mean, you know, Jesus is about to die. He's not going to need this. Let me just, let me just pour, let me just, let me just pour out a little bit. You know, a little nard could go a long way, I would guess. But no, she emptied it all. That's submitting to the lordship of Jesus. Here's the phrase that I want us to learn as a church. This is the phrase. This is the response of our heart when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. When Jesus doesn't give us all our dreams and hopes. When he didn't come through on the things we're praying for. This is, this is the posture of Mary here. Jesus, I trust you. I don't know if you're taking notes, but maybe you just write that down. What, a, what an incredible prayer when Jesus doesn't come through like you want him to. Jesus, I trust you. I don't understand all the things. I'm not aware. I'm disappointed. The pain stings. I'm walking through grief. But Jesus, I trust you. This is what submission to the lordship of Jesus looks like. Friends, can I remind you of one more thing? God's story always surpasses our own in both beauty and wisdom. 
God's story for your life is always a better story than your story for your life. And it's hard for us to see, I know, especially when we're walking through the difficulty, but God's story is always more beautiful than our story in both beauty and wisdom. Yes, I'm gonna pray for the longings of my heart, but in the end, just like Jesus did, as he's praying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, but not my will, but yours be done. Because I know, Father, your story is the better story. And your story for my life is always better in beauty and wisdom than my story for my life. Friends, are we willing to do what Christ commands? Are we really willing to do what he commands of us? And are we willing to be thankful for whatever happens? I'm reminded of that passage in Matthew, the parable of the hidden treasure. Let me end with this and we'll go into communion. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of pearls who is finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the picture of Mary of Bethany. She had found her treasure in Jesus and was willing to give the most expensive thing that she had, everything that she had, as an offering of worship to Jesus. Is it worth buying the field if it costs you everything? It is if it's got the great treasure in it. And this is, this really is what Jesus is to us, friends. He's the treasure in the field. He's the pearl of great price. Now, a lot of us know that theologically. We know that in our heads, but do we know it in our hearts? Are we walking with him in such intimacy in such love, in such generosity that we're willing to worship in that way. We're going to take communion in a second. And I love that communion is just this physical thing we do that reminds us of this very inward reality. Maybe when you take communion today, that you would just say that little prayer, Jesus, I trust you. Things have been difficult. My dreams haven't come true. I'm walking through one of the most difficult seasons of my life. My friends are walking through the most difficult season. I'm I'm struggling with grief. I'm frustrated. I've got all these questions and doubts and and I'm just in one of those seasons. And we could just bring all of that to the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I trust you. I'm going to pray for us. And the communion stations are going to be open. But I just want you to commune with with Jesus this morning, just right where you're at. Maybe even as I talk, the Holy Spirit began to bring up some things. Some unanswered prayers, some unfulfilled dreams. that you didn't deal with and they've become these seeds of bitterness 
And maybe your act of worship is just to take those things and bring them to the feet of Jesus this morning. Jesus, this isn't how I plan this working out. But I trust you and I trust that your story for my life is so much better than any story I could ever dream up for my life. Jesus, I trust you. I'm sure there's some even in this room today who have never stepped across the line of faith, never placed their faith and hope in Jesus. And this morning is the morning to do that. You've been kicking the tires on this thing for long enough, but you feel the Holy Spirit calling you even now. It's time to take a step of faith. Spirit could be leading you to do a numerous, numerous things. My encouragement, church, is you would take a step of faith. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this great example in Mary of Bethany. And her <clears throat> giving her all to you. But I pray for your church, the men and women teenagers, the kids in here, Lord, that they would have a posture of thankfulness and trust in you, no matter what they walk through. That they would believe that you still move mountains and you still bring healing, that your spirit is still at work in our lives. You are a miracle working God. We believe that. And we would keep knocking and keep asking and keep seeking. And while we wait, we would worship. Even in just a minute, we would really worship from the depths of our hearts. Thinking about all the good things, all the blessings that you've done for us, namely the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We give you some time to pray there. When you're ready, the communion stations are open. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion, but scripture lines out to you, you do have to be part of God's family. So if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've desired to walk in obedience to him, then it's certainly open. Here at our church, we just, there's little encapsulated pieces, the wafers on the bottom, the drinks on the top. You just come and get it. Go back to your seat and participate when you're ready. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Um, and then Phil and the band's going to lead us in worship through song um, in just a minute. Come when you're ready.